0: Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. Therefore, as a tongue of fire consumes stubble, and dry grass collapses into the flame. So their root will become like rot, and their blossom blow away as dust, for they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts. Holy Father, as I read your prophet and what he says, it seems like our day where we are calling evil good and good evil And yet we know that things, though they appear, are coming apart. They are actually coming together for the plans and purposes that you have for this world. Thank you that your sovereignty reaches every crack and corner of this world. And your providence extends to every detail of our lives. Even a sparrow, you said, cannot fall to the ground apart from your notice. So we come in humility. We come in worship we come in the name of your Son who allows us to approach your throne to find grace and help in time of need. We pray tonight or this morning as we worship that our hearts would be rich, enriched and tonight as Awana ministers through this club that you would touch the hearts of children. Thank you for the incredible year we had last season with over 300 in attendance each week. And we pray again for each of the campuses as they begin this week with the Awana ministry, that your blessing would be over it, that you would allow us to reach especially not just our own children, but all of these unchurched children in our community. We ask as we open your word today that you would open our hearts to its truth, that you would help us to understand what you have here for us, And I pray for those that have never crossed that line and have left the kingdom of darkness and come into the kingdom of light, that the Spirit of God would show them that, that they are lost, that they are in darkness, that they must be born a second time to enter your kingdom. Thank you for his ministry of convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And thank you for his teaching and illuminating ministry. And I ask today that his presence would be upon me, that he would help me, because without him I can do nothing. And that together we would lift up your son Jesus. And we ask it in his holy name. Amen. Would you take God's word this morning, please, and turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 14? You can see the subject of this morning's message is three angelic preachers. Now, if you're with us for the first time, you'll be interested to know we're working our way chapter by chapter through the revelation of Jesus Christ given to the Apostle John. And today, here in the 14th chapter that we'll be in for several weeks, There's a contrast between the Lamb, who is Jesus, and the Beast, who is the Antichrist. There's a contrast in this chapter between heaven and earth, between the doomed and those who are saved. One day, you and I are going to die. I'm going to die. Everyone within the sound of my voice will die. The only factor that will mitigate against that is if Jesus comes and catches up his church. And then even, in a sense, those who are raptured die, for it is appointed for a man to die once, and then comes the judgment. It's a different kind of death, though, In a twinkling of an eye in a moment. Our old body is shed, and we are given a new body resurrected to walk on streets of gold. But unless you meet God in the rapture, you will meet God. And of course, there are different ways in which people greet death. Some die by disease, by cancer, by heart attacks. Some die in their sleep. Some die by accident. Some die while they're awake. But you cannot escape death's grip. But while while there are many, many ways in which you can die... In the end, when you take all the air out of the balloon, there's only two ways in which you can die. You will either die as a saved person, or you will die as a lost person. I look here in my text at verse 13, and he describes those who are blessed if they die in the Lord. If you were to die today or Jesus were to return, you are either in the Lord Jesus, in his righteousness, clothed in forgiveness or you are still in your own righteousness, and if he finds you that way, you will be eternally doomed. And so this is a very, very important chapter of Scripture because it's a cry from heaven to decide. God made you as a free moral agent. He gave you a free will. And while you are free to choose, you are not free not to choose because not to choose is to choose. There is no such thing as neutrality in the Bible. And this chapter will underscore that. Now, for the benefit of those joining us for the first time and for the rest of our edification, because I want us to know the book, let me just briefly set the context today. This is one of the books in the Bible by which God himself gives the outline of the book. And I think it was critical that he did that because it's a challenging book and he doesn't want us to be confused by it. This is a book that if you read it, and heed it. The Scripture promises you'll be blessed by it. The outline for the book, of course, is in Revelation 119. John is commanded to write the things which you have seen. He did that in chapter 1. He recorded for us that vision of the glorified Christ. Write the things which are. He does that in chapters 2 and 3. The present day, seven churches that are functioning as he is alive there in the Isle of Patmos. And then the things which will take place after these things. That's the future. So chapter 4 all the way through chapter 22 brings us to the third section of the outline, the after these things section of the book. If you remember in chapters 4 and 5, we were given a vision of heaven. It's a vision of the future. And of course, in chapter 4 and verse 1, twice over, so we could not miss it, keying off of the outline he gave us in 119, The outline ends with, after these things, for one begins and ends with the words, after these things. That signals you that you're in the futuristic section of the book of Revelation. After these things, I looked. Behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, come up here and I will show you what will take place after these things. And so John is caught up through an open door, We call that the rapture, the catching up of the church. In Greek, it's harpazo. From the Latin translation, we get our word rapture. And so if you remember in chapter 4, you see the church that is there in the throne room of God, and they are worshiping the living God. In chapter 5, you see the Lord Jesus, who's described in two terms. He's called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. That speaks of his right to rule, and so from the right hand of the Father, he takes the seven-sealed scroll, and he begins to unleash judgments upon the earth such that, as Psalm 110 teaches, God will make his enemies his footstool. But not only is he the judge, as the lion of the tribe of Judah, he's also described as the Savior. He's the lamb that was slain. But not only is this lamb slain in the fifth chapter, this lamb is standing because he's victorious. He has overcome the grave, declaring his ability to take the title deed from the Father's hand and to claim, indeed, the earth as as his own. So around the throne were 24 thrones. Twenty-four elders, and we saw that these were not angels, we saw that these were not Israelites, we saw that these were members of the church, leaders of the church. We studied how 24 was a representative number of a large multitude of people. And so these 24 elders, along with us, we will be in this scene that we studied in the fourth and fifth chapters. We will witness it. If you are born again, we will be there. These 24 elders are representative of the church at large. Then when you come to chapter six, it's a watershed chapter. And so chapter six all the way through 18 begins to unfold the judgments of God. What will happen on the earth after the church is removed. That's what those chapters indeed answer for us. And we've seen that there are three principal sets of seven in which God brings his judgment upon the earth. First comes the seal judgments, and it is principally an expression of how the world is ruined by man. Then after this sealed judgment, if you remember, come the trumpet judgments. And during the time of the trumpet judgments, we see the earth is ruled by Satan. Satan is literally cast down to the earth with millions of demons. And there they are wreaking havoc against people who are upon the earth. But then the bold judgments will come. We haven't gotten there yet. That's chapters 15 and 16. And that will be the time in which God will rescue this world. And once those are complete, the end will come. Now, with that brief context, let's read our text. Revelation chapter 14, beginning in verse 6. Follow along in your Bibles. And I saw another angel flying in midheaven having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment is come. Worship him who made the heavens and the earth and sea and springs of water. And another angel, a second one, followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Now, has it ever occurred to you that virtually every major religion or sect in the world in some way acknowledge that there are angels or spirit guides that are at work? And of course, you need to always underscore in your thinking that everything that is spiritual is not spiritually good. Paul warned the church at Ephesus, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. If you've been through the discovery class, which meets in both hours, and if you haven't, I highly commend it to you. In the 9.30 or in the 9.15 hour has some seats, and it would be the best time to come, as I told them in the last service. But it's for three groups of people, brand new Christians, those who have never been discipled in basic truth. And uh, Dr. Billy Graham said that in his judgment, 90 to 95% of the genuine believers in America have remained baby Christians. They've never grown up. And the third group are mature Christians who want to know how to disciple someone else. And I would say to parents, before your children graduate from high school, they should go through it at least once, if not twice. It's a foundational class. And in the discovery class, we teach that there are three forces that wage war against the believer, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world refers to the world system around us that's opposed to God, that caters to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. A simple definition of the world is the society around us that is being energized by the prince of the power of the air. That's what Ephesians chapter 2 says. It says the world around us, is not happening accidentally that there is an evil one who is energizing the sons of disobedience. Then we wage war against the flesh, not referring to the skin that covers our skeleton, but to that fallen, endemic nature within that we inherited from Adam, because when Adam sinned, we all sinned in and with Adam. It's that proclivity that is opposed to God, and so by nature, by birth, by choice, we're all sinners. But third, we wage war war against the devil and his demons, called in the text we just read, rulers, powers, and forces of darkness. And Satan has an army of fallen angels. We studied back in Revelation 12 and verse 4, how a third of all the angels that rebelled with Satan, that all of the fallen demons, with the exception of those in the abyss, will be cast down to the earth. Now, right now, we are in a spiritual battle. We studied when we worked through Daniel in preparation for the Revelation. and the 10th chapter, this unseen war that is happening and angels fighting angels over countries and nations and states and different zones, even, I'm sure, places like the city that we live in. In addition, we are in a war that our battle is not against flesh and blood. And the Bible warns us, especially in the last of the last days, that there would be doctrines of demons. And so remember, angels were all created at once, never to make any more. There are no new angels. You don't go to heaven and get your angel wings. You don't say, well, he's now an angel in heaven. That's stinking rotten theology. It's inaccurate. God made one number of angels, some that are holy and elect, some that are fallen. And so God warns us. In Galatians chapter 1, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. It's the word anathema. It literally means damned to hell. God says that through Paul by the Spirit. Because God's salvation of souls are so precious to Him that if someone would preach a different gospel, a message contrary to the original one found in God's Word, it's what we would call another gospel, or maybe even today, fake news. Now, don't get me wrong. Angels are awesome. They are greater in power and might than we are. They radiate the glory of God, but right now they are not preachers. I mean, think your way through this. Why is it that the Lord Jesus did not commission angels to take the gospel to the world, but He commissioned believers who are still fallen? Why did He commission us? Because during the church age, He's building His church through believers who have experienced the grace of God. Paul in, or Peter in First Peter chapter 1 and verse 12, if you'll bring that slide up, he reminds us, it was revealed to them, the Old Testament prophets, that they were not serving themselves but you, In these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things that angels long to look into." Concerning the salvation that the prophets wrote of that we had preached to us through faithful preachers of the gospel, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is something that angels long to look into. Now, the word here, to look into, is an interesting word. It's the exact same verb that's used of Peter and John when on that first resurrection Sunday, they go and they look and peer and study the empty tomb. And so God is picturing the eagerness of angels as if they're bending down from the battlements of heaven, and they're studying the church. In the margin of the New American Standard on this verse, it says, "...things into which angels long to look and to gl- gain a clear glimpse." Now, remember, angels are not redeemed. Only people will be redeemed. Angels, when they sin, they are forever settled in their destiny. But we came into a world where there were already fallen angels, and that may be part of the reason by which God extends grace to man as he did not to them. But angels play a very prevalent role in Scripture. Even at the beginning of the creation, the Bible says the morning stars, a term for angels, sang at God's creation as he wove the world together. But before long their song was turned to sadness. We're there in the Garden of Eden, man sinned against God. And I'm sure many of the holy angels watched and wondered what God would do. Can you imagine God calling a council together in eternity and saying to the angels, my creation is fallen. Man is a sinner. What must I do? And they probably would have said with one voice, judge man. But God says, no, man must be redeemed. And they long, they look, they study, how is it that God will redeem man? How will God remain just and holy and true to himself, and yet at the same time forgive and release man of the judgment that he deserves? And so they stand on the outside. Every time we worship, First Corinthians tell us, our congregation is larger than we realize. There are angels that are studying that are looking, that are listening to what we are saying and how we are even worshiping. Now, while angels can study our great salvation, they cannot experience it. It is those of us who have inherited salvation that are served by angels. But there is coming a day when the situation will be different. When only those, not only those who have experienced salvation will preach it, but angels will preach it. I mean, think your way through this for just a moment. During the church age, God is not using angels to preach the gospel. He's using saved, regenerate, born-again Christians. Remember in Acts, the 10th chapter, when Cornelius needs salvation, God doesn't send an angel and say, go preach to that man and tell him how to be saved. No, all the angel can do is to tell him how he and Peter can get together, and then Peter shares the plan of salvation. But during the tribulation, it will be different. But we would do well to heed the warning during the church age that Paul gives in Galatians 1.8. But even if we are an angel from heaven should preach you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached, you, he is to be accursed. Now, he does not say, he doesn't rule out the possibility that an angel can preach the gospel. He doesn't say, oh, it will never happen. It is going to happen. But I want to tell you in every instance, when an angel preaches in this age, he is given a sour, bad message. He has given another gospel, he has given a different gospel. Think about Islam. Muhammad received a call into the ministry through an angel that he named as Gabriel he said for a long time he thought that this was a demon that was speaking to him but eventually he recognized in his mind that it was an angel from God and he was instructed to write down the Quran it's a so-called revelation that was given to him 600 years after Christ by the angel Gabriel now I'm always amused at Christmas When I get a Christmas card and they show the three wise men, if indeed there were just three, I don't know, I think probably many more, but in the background are these minarets in the first century. Of course, Islam does not come until 600 years after Christ, but as a faithful Muslim, you are taught that if you keep the articles of faith, if you follow the five pillars of the faith, that you can earn your way to heaven. They deny the substitutionary death of Jesus. In fact, it says in Quran 4, uh, verse 156, that Jesus did not die, but one in his likeness died. And today, most Muslims say that that was Judas who died there. Think about Ellen G. White, the founder of Seventh-day Adventism. She, too, says that she was touched by an angel, and it was revealed to her hidden truths that were not found in the Bible. And I suppose we could talk about William Branham, who also said that he had an encounter with a holy angel. He said that God sent a direct revelation to him that the doctrine of the Trinity was an evil doctrine that in the Garden of Eden that Eve had a relationship with the serpent. Uh, He denies the deity of Christ, and because he denies also the doctrine of the Trinity, when one is baptized in his group, you're baptized only in Jesus' name. And we have a whole congregation of people in our own community that follow the teachings of William Branham. Or consider Mormonism. They say that Elohim, or the Father, came down to earth and had a physical relationship with the Virgin Mary, and that Jesus came about, and that Jesus was not eternal, that He was created. And of course, He tells us that uh, He had an encounter with the angel Moroni. Joseph Smith, of course, was a polygamist. Supposedly, when this angel came to him, these tablets that had been hidden for some 1,400 years were revealed to him. And of course, in Mormonism, the death of Jesus is not a payment for sin. His death is not substitutionary in nature. It is not an atonement that relieves you from the eternal wrath of God, you earned salvation. And they also argue that Jesus came and preached to the American Indians. And this was all revealed to Joseph Smith. Listen, a man's morality is often dictated by his theology. Now it's well documented, and it's made a lot of Mormons disillusioned. The Mormon church cannot deny it. Joseph Smith had some 40 different Wives, And they teach, according to the Book of Mormon, that if you are a faithful Mormon, that someday you will die and you will inherit your own planet and you will live as a polygamous God having spirit children. But interestingly, Mormonism has a lot of parallels to Islam. Both deny the deity of Christ, both deny the doctrine of the Trinity, both deny the deity of the Holy Spirit, both deny the infallibility and authority of the Word of God, both deny the true nature of God. In their book, Mormon's book, and the Quran have absolutely zero, not one, fulfilled prophecy. Because God didn't write it. And so Paul's just warning us, and we could talk about Jehovah's Witness and their encounter with angels, or more recently, Steph- Stephanie Meyer and her encounter, and she gave us the Twilight series. But Paul warns that even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Here is the point that I want you to see, that while angels are not preaching during the church age... A time is coming when they will preach after the church is removed. Now, we've already studied in the Revelation that God will use 144,000 Jewish men to carry the gospel to the world. There will be two witnesses whom I suggested to you were Moses and Eliza. And then there are three flying angels who will preach there in midair. If you're taking notes this morning... Three angels who give three sermons. The first angel preaches the judgment that has come. He preaches the judgment that has come. The first angel is preaching a sermon about an eternal gospel. And this gospel basically has three dimensions. He gives a good three-point sermon. Maybe he went to a homiletics class. I don't know. But in either case, first he reminds us that this gospel can be heard by all. It can be heard by all. Again, we read here in verse 6, And I saw another angel flying in mid heaven, having an eternal gospel, to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. Now, the Bible teaches that God takes no delight in the death of the wicked. God desires that none should perish. His heart is that all be saved. And so what we find here in verse 6 is this angel who's proclaiming the eternal gospel, and he's flying in midair. It's the word that literally means zenith. It was used in the first century to mark the spot when the sun, typically at noon, was at its highest point in the sky. The Antichrist won't be able to shoot this angel down, and no one will be able to ignore him people will pour out into the streets, into the fields. They'll get out of their cars, and they will look, and they will hear this angel preach an eternal gospel. Now remember, this is the time of the tribulation. This is the time in which you've already crossed the halfway point. You're in the second half of the tribulation, shortly after the abomination of desolation has taken place. And I'll show you that chronology when we come to the 17th and 18th chapter. But God has already poured a number of judgments upon the earth. He has let his wrath begin to unfold. And so here is this angel who is to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. It's an amazing thought to consider. Now think about this for a moment. You say, well, how is an angel going to preach in a way that everyone... From every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, will be able to understand his message. Well, God is big. Listen, if you can believe Genesis 1-1, you can believe anything, and that's why the devil attacks Genesis 1-1. In many ways, this is the flip of Pentecost. Do you remember what happened on the day of Pentecost? In Acts 2-6, we're told the crowd came together, the 120 spill out from the upper room, and they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. These Galileans, who, who didn't know all these other languages, were speaking perfectly a foreign language, and not just the foreign language, but a dialect within the language. It was a miracle. Well, I suppose this will be the reverse. This angel will preach, and the people on the earth will hear the angel message in their own language. And God is doing this because He's long-suffering. God is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish. God is pleading one final time for people to repent and to return. So this angel's message can be heard by all because they all hear it in their own language. In addition, this gospel has eternal implications for all. It has eternal implications for all. Again we read here at the start of verse 6, and I saw another angel flying in mid heaven having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth. By the way, this is the only designation of the gospel as an eternal gospel. The King James has an everlasting gospel. The gospel represents everlasting or eternal truth, truth that is unchanged, truth that will last forever. False doctrines, of course, come and go, and they change all the time. Paul warns the Ephesians, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. New teachings are like the wind and the waves that are forever shifting and moving about. And, of course, during this time in human history, the pinnacle of all false doctrine will have its way. We're going to see, especially when we come to Revelation 17, this initial one-world religion that will change midstream after... A miracle happens to the Antichrist. And the Antichrist, of course, his coming, the Bible says, will be in accord with the activity of Satan, with all powers and signs and false wonders. Matthew 24, 24 also teaches that there will be many false messiahs and false prophets who will do all kinds of miracles to deceive if possible. Yet it's not possible, but if possible, it's a conditional statement, meaning it's not possible, if possible, to deceive even the elect. Now, the word gospel here, of course, simply means good news, but it's modified by the word eternal gospel, because again, the gospel of God's Son is timeless, it's unchanged. People have only been saved through the gospel. Whatever time in human history in which they live People who lived before Christ Were looking forward to the fulfillment of the gospel The first gospel I preached a message one time on Christmas morning I called it the first Christmas message It wasn't found in Matthew's gospel It was found in Genesis 3.15 The proto-evangelium The first gospel was ever preached Was there in the garden And God begins to unfold it All the way through Genesis And all the way through the Old Testament And so people in the Old Covenant, they were looking forward to the promise of Messiah. We have looked back, but you will meet no one who is in heaven except through the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of God's Son. And that's what the gospel is, that Christ died on a cross, a substitutionary death. The Bible says... Christ died for sins. Well, if Christ died for sin and he had zero sin, the only way to understand his death is in your place. He was buried. That's a part of the gospel because that's what you do with dead people. You bury them. And then on the third day, he was raised up declaring that God had accepted the payment that he had made, that he was sinless, therefore able to serve as a substitute, and that he is indeed Lord. And so all the way through the New Testament, the gospel is described in different words. For instance, it's called the gospel of the kingdom. It's called the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's called the gospel of the grace of God. In Mark 1, the gospel of God. In Second Corinthians, the gospel of the glory of Christ. In Ephesians, the gospel of salvation. Timothy, First Timothy, the glorious gospel. And then the last time it's mentioned here in Revelation 14, it's referred to as an eternal gospel. Now, when we understand the good news of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, that this is an eternal gospel, the good news about Jesus, of God's grace, of God's glory, that you can have peace with God, that you can be forgiven, that you can be saved, that you can have a place for all of eternity in heaven, then indeed you will hold on to it with all of your heart and life, and you will faithfully share it. So here's an angel who's preaching an eternal gospel because he knows it has eternal implications. Think about it. Everyone who has ever lived, everyone who is currently alive, and everyone who is yet to be born is affected by the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's not a single solitary event in the history of man that is like the gospel of Jesus Christ. It has changed the destiny for good or for judgment of everyone who has ever walked upon the earth. No wonder Paul can say, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So this gospel can be heard by all. It has eternal uh, implications, but it's also in the hearts of all. And let me show how that is true. Again, the vision here in Revelation 14 in which the angel proclaims the eternal gospel. It's a future prophecy of something that is going to happen during the tribulation period. This takes place before the seven final judgments, before the seven final bowls of wrath that are described in Revelation 15 and 16. Now, God is giving mankind one last chance. Not everyone has responded yet to the message of the Antichrist. Look, if you will, now at verse 7. Through his angel, it says, and he, referring to the first angel, this first preaching angel, and he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and sea and springs of water. Because God is interested in the salvation of souls, just as he had Moses Take a pole and set it high on a standard so that anyone there in the camp of Israel, some two million people could see it. Just as God made salvation available to all in Israel, even so, God now with a phono we get our word, we reverse it megaphone, with a loud voice up there in the zenith place of the heavens for all to see, for everyone to be able to hear, even the deaf. Everyone, without exception, in their own language, are going to hear this marvelous news. And the message is, fear God and give Him glory. Now, the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, which, of course, demands a self-deprecation, a self-surrender, a self-humiliation, when I hear this, I think often of the words of the Lord Jesus. He said, do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. You should write that out in the margin next to this verse, Matthew ten twenty-eight. Likewise, in the context of this, remember the second half of the tribulation, to give him glory is an idiom basically to repent, to change your mind before it's too late to reject the claim of the Antichrist and acknowledge God as God, fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come. Now, there are different words for time in the Bible. There's the word time for a season of time, but this is not that word. It's not the word kairos. This is the word hora, and it refers to a point in time, an hour of time, a moment of time. Payday is not someday, it's right now. It is coming. The seventh trumpet is getting ready to sound, which will release the seven bowls of wrath. And when those are finished, God says, it's done. Then we have another little pause to see what has been going on in 17 and 18. But the next event is the second coming of Christ in the 19th chapter. Again, this happens in the second half of the tribulation. Look at verse 7. Let's read it all now. And he said with a loud voice, fear God. And give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and sea and springs of water. Now, why do you suppose that he is turning them to the God who created the heaven? Very simply, God is putting them on notice. All of these judgments have originated from the heavens, and now God is reminding them that they are to worship the God who made the heavens. Why? Because they're doing the opposite. We're going to see in the 17th chapter one dimension of the one world religion is that men will worship the created order rather than God who created the world. And of course, in essence, that's what they're doing with the Antichrist. When they worship and follow the Antichrist, they're following a two-legged creature. Now, because he's not God, unlike the Lord Jesus, who's God and man, to worship and follow the Antichrist is to worship the creation rather than the creator. You say, well, they're just ignorant. They should be excused. No, they know precisely what they are doing. You say, how do you know? Because we've already studied in Revelation chapter 6 when the Lamb begins to open up the seal judgments and the kings of the world begin to hide themselves and the people say, let the rocks fall on us. They recognize what they are experiencing is the wrath of the Lamb. It comes out of their own mouth. These people are fully accountable, yet many will still rebel. They are without excuse. Why are they without excuse? Because there's a sense in which the good news has been placed in the bosom of every human man. God, in some respect, has revealed some dimension of truth to people. Paul argues that in Romans 1. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so they are without excuse. The problem is not that man doesn't have revelation. The problem is that he is suppressing that revelation. For even though they knew God, not that he uh, knew Him in a personal way, like in John 17, 3, this is eternal life. I met a woman this week, and her husband, he was 92, she was 87, shared the plan of salvation. Praise the Lord, both received Christ. God's so good. Uh, Nonetheless, I said, why should you go to heaven? And how sure? I'm 100%. Why? Because I I believe there's a God. No, that won't cut it. All men believe there's a God. There's no such thing as an atheist, no such thing at all. Even the demons believe there's a God, knowing it and acknowledging that there's a God isn't enough to save you. These people knew of God's existence, but they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. They became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. People today have the creation that shouts God's attributes. In addition, we have the ministry of the Holy Spirit that convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And yet thousands of churches across America every year now celebrate what's called Evolution Sunday. Why? Because they have manufactured a God in their own image. I've never let Tim Keller's so-called books on apologetics be used in this church because he's so, a so-called Christian apologist. And yet in that book, he argues it's okay to be a theistic evolutionist. Oh, no, it's not. You cannot wed Mother Nature with Father God and come up with theistic evolution. It's absolute heresy. And now, just last week, this man released a survey that I should take as my church to see if we're friendly to so-called gay Christians. Listen. Gay people are welcomed here, but there's no such thing as a gay Christian. That is an oxymoron. So here is God shouting from heaven, turn to my son through this angel. Now that's what the first angel preaches, that judgment has come. But with his warning, he gives us message that can be heard by all. It has eternal implications, and in one sense, it's in the hearts of all, and that God has already given some revelation of himself. Secondly, this angel preaches that Babylon has fallen. He preaches that Babylon has fallen. And I suppose this angel, too, has attended a homiletics class because he, too, has three points to his sermon. First, Babylon is fallen. Now, as soon as the first angel is done... Kind of like the old tag-teaching preachers, you know, in some of the uh, uh, old churches in the 1800s, they would they would have these meetings, and they'd have tag-team preachers. And preacher would preach for an hour, and someone would come up and tag them, and the next guy would go for an hour. They sometimes would go all day long, and you could come and go and hear these men preach. Well, the next preacher steps up, the next angel, the second angel, and another angel, a second one, followed, saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon. A second angel appears, and he pronounces final judgment on Babylon, and he says it twice to underscore its absolute certainty. The angel speaks of Babylon here as if it's already fallen, as if it's as good as done. Now, we're going to study this in great detail when we come to chapters 17 and 18. It hasn't happened yet, but this is what linguists call a future preterist, where you describe something as if it has already happened, just like the Old Testament will often use what we call a prophetic past tense. Now, there's no such thing really technically as a prophetic past, but you would write something in a past tense when you want to underscore the certainty of a future event. And so in Isaiah 53, it says, "'Surely our griefs he himself bore.'" And our sorrows he carried past towns. Yet we ourselves esteemed him, esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. This is a messianic prophecy concerning the Lord Jesus. 700 years before it happened, but linguists and writers and prophets of God would sometimes put a prophecy in the Past to underscore the certainty of its future fulfillment, and so this angel is shouting, "Fallen, fallen, fallen!" Is Babylon? The obituary has already been written. It's absolutely guaranteed. But then he makes a second point: not only is Babylon fallen, Babylon is more than a city. It's more than a city. Now we're just being introduced to the concept. And we've seen John do this before. He introduces us to something, and a few chapters later, he gives us a full-blown explanation. This is one of the reviews and previews of things to come. And another angel, a second one, following followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Now, that's an impressive statement here that he mentions Babylon. Remember, 404 verses in the book of Revelation. 44 of them concern This system, this city called Babylon, that's 11% of the book of Revelation. We're going to learn when we come to the 17th chapter that not only is Babylon a religious world system, but it is a literal, actual, physical city built on seven hills, and we will see, letting Scripture interpret Scripture, that it's actually referring to Rome. But right now, he is affirming the fact that Babylon is falling, and he describes it as a city, but far more than a city. Now, think about it for a moment. There are two key cities that are mentioned in the Bible that are mentioned more than any other cities in all of the Scripture. Number one is Jerusalem, the holy city as the Bible defines it. It's mentioned over 800 times in the Word of God. By the way, do you know how many times it's mentioned in the Quran? Zero. That's right, a big, fat zero. And so they claim Israel and Jerusalem is theirs. It's not even mentioned in the Quran. In either case, it's mentioned over 800 times. The very first time in Genesis 14, the very last time in Genesis chapter. 21. Well, we're going to discover in the 17th and 18th chapter the great emphasis that God places on Babylon. And Babylon is mentioned some 300 times in the Bible. The very first time we're introduced to it is in Genesis 10, and the last time we will see it will be in Revelation chapter 18. And just as the city of Jerusalem represents the plans and purposes of God, Babylon represents the plans and purposes of Man. We're introduced to it, if you remember, in Genesis 10, if you were here for this series in Genesis. And in Genesis 10, there's a fellow by the name of Nimrod. Nimrod is a type of the Antichrist. There are all kinds of types pictures given in the book of Genesis, like Abraham up there on top of Mount Moriah giving his uniquely begotten son. He's a picture of what the Lord Jesus did for us also on top of Mount Moriah. So there's all these types and pictures and illustrations. Nimrod, of course, was the fellow who orchestrated a a one-world movement, and they built what's called the Tower of Babel. Now, the word Babel in Hebrew means confusion. But if you were reading it in Greek, and there's a Greek translation of the Old Testament, most of you know that is the Septuagint. It's not called Babel. It's called Babylon. And so the first century reader would have immediately picked up on it, and they understood that Babylon is this picture, this type of this one world philosophical perspective on how a man should worship God. And of course, Nimrod is described as a mighty hunter of, a a mighty hunter of man, but you never literally actually see him hunting with a bow and arrow. He's a hunter of the souls of men, and he does it with a false world religion. And of course, they built this tower, and they're not, they're not trying to build a, a, a tower that literally somehow they can build it high enough and get up there and see God. No, it's, it's a tower that reaches the heavens, the text says, and it's a picture of the zodiac, and they have found many zodiacs across Babylon. It's the acknowledgement that man should worship the stars rather than the god who created the stars you say well is the babylonian religion popular today there are many expressions of it we will see its final expression in the 17th chapter but millions of people even today follow their horoscopes i hope you don't do that so i just kind of like to play around with it that's like a man saying well i'm just gonna flirt with this woman it's evil don't let that into your home ever But understand that half of young adults in the United States now believe in astrology as a science, and millennials follow it as a way of life. It was just released, pure research said that 58% of baby boomers, that's my age, 58% of baby boomers attend church on what they call a weekly or at least once a month basis, 18% of millennials attend church on either weekly or a a once-a-month basis. And many of these millennials have rejected traditional Christianity, and they have embraced astrology, literally as a science. You know, when I was a boy, when you met someone, they would often say, well, what is that name? That 92-year-old man, no, his 87-year-old wife said to me, well, what is that name, Bro- Brogi?" I said, well, it's pronounced really Brogy, and it's Italian in origin. But that was a common question when I was a kid. Now, people don't ask that anymore. Now, today, when young people interact, it's not simply, well, where do you live or what do you do? But what is your sign they're interested in your sign, and if you know anything about the newest expressions of astrology, they're integrated with body piercing and the tattooing of the body with sexual immorality. And so a fascinating study that we're going to do in the 17th chapter is there's coming this one-world religion. It's going to be centered in a place of seven hills, specifically Rome. But it's more than a city. It's a philosophy. In addition, Babylon is compared to a heart to a harlot, Babylon is compared to a harlot. Let's read now, verse eight. In another angel, a second one followed, saying, "Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality." Again, we'll consider this in detail, um, but again, I just want you to know that she is introduced here as someone. Who is engaged in immorality? Now understand the term immorality is used in different ways in the Bible. Sometimes of literal, actual, physical sexual immorality, but sometimes of spiritual immorality. James will say, to those people who are friends of the world. They are adulteresses. They have committed spiritual adultery. God accused Israel, to whom he was married, as having committed spiritual adultery. Now, interestingly, because God's not married to the unbeliever, he cares about the unbeliever. This harlot, that represents a false message, basically invites people to fornication it's another form of spiritual wickedness and she is a harlot she's called a whore in the 17th chapter here she's just called Babylon the Great and we will see that this is not the literal physical city of Babylon, though many think that because the Babylonians embraced the teaching that was taught at the Tower of Babel that maybe they were either direct descendants or they just adopted their, the title of their group from those folks. I don't know. No one can say dogmatically. But in either case, this harlot is going to seduce people with a false religion away from the living God. She's a seducing harlot with her lies and with an intoxicating wine, just like wine wicked men know that if you want to seduce someone of the opposite sex, you give them wine to drink. That's what the book of Habakkuk says in the second chapter. Woe to you who gives your neighbor to drink to make them drunk so you can see their nakedness. Well, this harlot gives the wine of her wicked theology to make people drunk on false doctrine. All right, you with me? Here's the first angel. The angel preaches judgment has come. The second angel, Babylon has fallen. But now the third angel, the third angel preaches to escape God's wrath. The third angel preaches to escape God's wrath. And this angel also unfolds three simple truths concerning the wrath of God. First, that God's wrath is personal. It's personal. Verse 9 introduces us to this third preaching angel. Then another angel, a third one, followed them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, So if you remember, there's an unholy trinity. Satan takes the role of God the Father, the Antichrist, the role of God the Son. But then he has this sinister minister of propaganda, a false prophet who takes the role of the Holy Spirit and points men to the Antichrist. And he tries to convince them to take the mark of the beast on their right hand or on their forehead. And many will do it. Now, we'll see it when we come to the 17th chapter, but let me just give you kind of a preview of what's going to happen. We're going to learn in the 17th chapter that during the first half of the tribulation, the Antichrist, who is the beast, is going to Carry this woman on top of her. He is going to let the woman ride the beast, so to speak. He is going to use this mystery Babylon as as it is described. That's why I say Babylon is more than a city. It's called mystery Babylon, something that was hidden but is now revealed. He is going to allow this woman who is going to lead this one world religion to unite the nations of the world together. And religion has a way of gluing people together that politics often cannot do. But there will come a point, as we will see, through a 10 nation coalition that the Antichrist will say to the woman, I'm done with you, and he will destroy her. When will that happen? After the Antichrist is killed. We studied that in the 13th chapter. The 17th chapter is going to review it and give us the chronology. The Antichrist is going to experience a fatal wound, but then he is going to come back to life. And the Scripture will say in the 17th chapter, he will come out of the abyss. He's a real human, but at this point, he is a superhuman. He's called the son of perdition in Scripture. There's only one other person who's called the son of perdition, and that's Judas, who is literally inhabited by a demon. The Antichrist will literally have the power of Satan, And the world will stand in awe as he is not resurrected to life in a resurrected body, but as he is raised to life, it will be a miracle, like the miracle of Lazarus, and the world will fall at his feet. And the false prophet will try to get people to follow him. And so people have to make a choice. Now understand, not everyone has made a choice at this point. This is why we have this preaching angel to warn people. It's not too late for some of them. Some of them have not yet made the choice, but many will make the choice. Some will sell their soul to be able to get a good meal or to buy a tank of gas because you will be able to buy or sell nothing unless you take the mark of the beast. And those who refuse the mark, the Bible teaches, will be tortured, persecuted, starved, and put to death by beheading. There will be no neutrality. Now, people today think they can be neutral about the Lord Jesus because they think, well, there's really no consequence, and you don't really see the consequence until you die. He that believes in the Son has life. The one who does not believe, the wrath of God lives on him. They see that at the moment of death. One second after they're dead, they will see they made the most foolish decision in life. But understand, these people will immediately see the consequences. You either follow Antichrist and get all the benefits of following him, or you are tortured and persecuted. You have to decide, will you defy the Antichrist or will you deify the Antichrist? Now, let me read verse 10. There are two words that I think you should circle that describe that God's wrath is personal. First, uh, actually in verse 9, the word anyone, circle that word. If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he, circle that personal pronoun, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God. Very simply put, if you worship the enemy of God, you will experience the wrath of God. Now, the question has come up several times in the last month on the Bible line, and some of you grabbing me in the hallway or emailing me through search the Scriptures, is it possible, it's been asked, once you take the mark of the beast to be forgiven? And the answer emphatically from this verse and others like it is no, you cannot be forgiven. You say, well, why is taking the mark of the beast such a damnable sin against God? Why does it condemn a person to an eternity in hell? Because to take the mark of the beast is to willfully choose to serve Satan rather than God. It is a formal rejection against the Lord Jesus Christ. Just like today, if you receive Jesus, you make an eternal decision that cannot be undone and you would never want it to be undone. Likewise, in this day, when people choose the mark of the beast, they will make an eternal decision. If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God. Now, this is a frightening message. And by the way, it's designed to frighten people. It's designed to get people not to embrace the Antichrist and to follow the eternal gospel of Christ. Those who say that our preaching should never scare unbelievers and that we should never hang over their head the reality of judgment have both misrepresented the message of this angel and what Jesus taught. Now, I cannot preach the Bible consistently, and I preach through whole books of the Bible. I don't skip verses. Now, there are some pastors who conveniently just preach certain sections of the Bible. And many times you find out what they are really like and what they embrace by what they don't say. But understand, if you preach the whole counsel of God as we're commanded to do, you're going to have to deal with the multiplicity of texts that deal with the eternal wrath of God. Now, if you were raised in a home where you were taught that hell is just a figment of someone's imagination or it's something that you hold over people to keep them uh, honest or, or hell is just like, you know, hanging around in a traffic jam on a difficult day, oh, this is hell, then you were misinformed. The gospel is not just believe in the Lord Jesus Christ in order for you to go to heaven. Equally true is the gospel is believe in the Lord Jesus that you might not go to hell. Now, as a pastor, I am going to preach by God's grace until I die, or He takes me, the whole council And I recognize that as a preacher... I will incur a stricter judgment than most of you. That's what the Scripture says. I have been entrusted to the Word of God, and if I uh, leave portions out or rationalize it away or change its meaning, I am going to meet God in a severer judgment. There's a judgment that every Christian faces, not to see if they go to heaven, but how they will be rewarded for all of eternity when they get to heaven. If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his right hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God. Please notice again the pronouns. This is not metaphorical. This is not mystical. This is personal. It is a personal horror. And as we will see in a moment, it embraces a literal fire. Now, many supposed evangelicals in our day no longer preach what this angel is preaching, and a lot of pastors today look for loopholes in the doctrine of eternal uh, retribution by just saying, well, it's just a place of eternal separation. It, indeed, it is that, but it's much more than that, which brings me to the second description. Not only is the wrath of God personal, I want you to see that the Bible teaches God's wrath is painful. It is painful. Again, at the end of verse 9, we read, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, notice, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength and the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of his holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. I want you to notice that unlike many pastors and Christians today, this third angel will basically spend all his time preaching about a coming judgment. Again, his message is designed to frighten people that this is an everlasting judgment. Now, it's certainly very compact and condensed, but nonetheless, it deals with the wrath of God. And please notice, he deals here with the wrath of God in terms of he will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength. Now, you know in the first century that Jewish people as Christians would typically take wine and the term could be used of grape juice that had just been squeezed or grape juice that had fermented and they would mix it with water. It was kind of a purified drinking system. The Greeks and the Romans, about ten different writers from those centuries before and after Christ say that you are a barbarian if you just drank straight wine. They typically mix it, the Romans and the Greeks, in a three to one ratio. Three parts water, one part wine. The Jews and their pastoral manuals, so to speak, that rabbis would use and the uh, Mishnah indicated that uh, there were times at the festivals when they would drink wine and they were to mix it in a four-to-one ratio because they didn't want to be guilty of drinking strong drink. The Didash, a second century AD pastoral manual, said that if you did not have fresh wine, new wine at the Lord's Supper, You are to mix it in a four-to-one ratio, lest you be guilty of using strong drink. And so the first century reader caught this. What he is saying here is that God's wrath is not going to be diluted. It is going to come here unmixed. It is straight wrath in its fullest strength. He also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God. That's what he says. And then John adds, He will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength, and the cup of his anger, thumos. We get our word thermometer from it. It describes burning hot anger. Mercy and compassion will not be diluted with this. This will be the straight wrath and burning anger of God. Can you imagine the prophet David, David was a king and a prophet, the Bible teaches, and prophetically he describes this coming time in Psalm 2. Now, therefore, O king, show discernment, take warning, O judges of the earth, worship Yahweh, worship the Lord with reverence, and rejoice with trembling. trembling. Do homage to the Son, that He may not become angry, and you perish in the way, for His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are those who take refuge in Him. Yet... Most Americans today do not believe that God is a God of wrath. And quite honestly, I think that's part of Satan's strategy to bury the doctrine of eternal retribution, to hide it in a closet somewhere. But this third angel plainly preaches that it is personal, it is painful, but also that God's wrath is permanent. It's permanent. Look at verse 11. And the smoke of his torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Now, we'll cover this in depth when John covers it, but understand that hell is forever. Hell is permanent. And this angel would strongly disagree that hell is somehow burned out. I don't care what Rob Bell thinks in his book, Love Wins. There he is, stands in front of Willow Creek Community Church 20,000 people every weekend, whose pastor is now defunct because of sexual immorality that wasn't once but over decades. And they give him a standing ovation because there is no such thing as the eternal retribution of God. God says in his book that they have no rest day and night. Hell will never burn itself out. When a man, a woman, has been there 100 million years, he won't have one less second to spend there. That's the message of this third angel. As I thought about it this week, I I think that very often we don't think of God's angels with these kinds of message. But one of the things that's underscored in the Revelation is that these angels are God's agents to deliver God's wrath in the sealed trumpet and bowl judgments. And that this third angel is preaching the eternal wrath of God. Now, most angels, as they're described in books that you will pick up today, are described as rather effeminate and just, you know, sissy angels, so to speak. And, you know, and unfortunately, we have a lot of pastors like that in the ministry. They're girly men. They're girly men, and they have no spiritual strength in their spine, and they're afraid to tell the truth because they're afraid what people will think and that people will leave. Listen. God is love, the Bible says, but the other God is passage is God is a consuming fire. And we need both. You cannot understand the grace and mercy and love of God apart from the wrath of God. And when you preach both, you have awakenings. That's what happened in the first great awakening. And one of the great preachers of that time was Jonathan Edwards. His signature sermon was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I thought, what would we entitle a sermon today by the average preacher? Maybe sinners in the hands of a happy God. Or possibly people who have made some bad choices in life in the hands of a loving God. Or maybe it would be negative thinkers in the hands of a positive God who wants to fulfill their vision and make their lives the best life now. Edwards preaches sinners... And the hands of an angry God. And I read it in college because I was converted about the same time as my friend Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards, we're in the same Bible study together, was a great-great, I'm not sure how many greats, grandson of the original Jonathan Edwards. And we were both new believers, we were growing in Christ, and I'd never heard of this guy Jonathan Edwards. I didn't know his name was famous, but I did by the end of my freshman year, and I read the sermon, and it stuck in my craw, and it still sticks with me today. Uh, the messages of positive thinkers and the positive word movement, they refuse to speak of the coming wrath of God. Their message is basically, God is nice, you are nice, so be nice, and if you will be nice, then God will be nicer to you. That's behavior modification. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Think about what Jesus said. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell, into the unquenchable fire. Put those words up against the health-wealth message of today. In essence, Jesus is saying it would be better to be a crippled saint on your way to heaven than to be a healthy sinner on your way to hell. Now, I know that the term hell is uh, just abused today. It's often a swear word, or it's used to describe a difficult time in life. And we say, well, he's going through hell. But we're going to learn in the Revelation, it is a literal, real place of torment. Now, when I came as your pastor almost 30 years ago, 86% of Americans believed in the doctrine of eternal retribution. Now only 54% believe in hell. And what really shrinks it is when you get down into the younger ages where very few of them think of God at all like that. It's the older people who have brought the percentages up. But I want to tell you, if you could survey all the demons in the world today, 100% believe it to be a literal place of torment. Now, hell was not made for man. The Bible says hell was made for the devil and his angels. But when you listen to the devil and follow the devil and do what the devil does, then you get what the devil gets. You will go to the place where he will go in the end. Now, I've heard it preached many times by some pastors, they seem to get some kind of enjoyment of telling people they go to hell. I get no such enjoyment I have no pleasure in that any more than God takes no pleasure, the prophet Ezekiel said, in the death of the wicked. But I must preach it because I love God and I love Him because He first loved me. And I am called as a preacher to teach the whole counsel of Scripture. In fact, what makes hell so real to me and God's love so real to me is when I bring the two of them together. Because I understand that on the cross, Jesus' death had to at least equal the payment that I would need to experience for all of eternity in hell. Now, you may not want to listen to this message today, and I don't know if those people who have gotten up and left were because they were mad at me. Sometimes they just have to use the bathroom or their number comes out. I don't take it personally, but it happens, because how do I know it happens? Because I call the visitors sometimes, and they say, well, I left I'd filled out a card and, and uh, uh, I, I put it in, in, in the Sunday school class, and, but I laughed because I didn't like what you had to say. Okay, that's all right. On one occasion, Jesus encountered two gathering demoniacs. Do you remember that? The Bible emphasizes one over the other because one had a more prominent role. But nonetheless, in that place called Cursey, some of you have been with me to Cursey. You can see the actual tombs where these guys lived. We're going there next year, and maybe you'd like to come. But I'll tell you, if last week is like next week, we're going to fill up very, very fast on this trip. But at one point, the people said, leave us alone, Jesus. Go from here. We don't want you. And Jesus gave them their wish. Listen, when you come under the preaching of God's Word, and the Spirit of God is convicting you, and you put God off, you're making the mistake of your life. You can't come to God whenever you want to come to God. No one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. And if God is speaking to your heart today and you're unsure of where you're going to spend eternity, you should prepare. The Bible says prepare to meet your God. You know, we prepare for all kinds of things in life. We prepare for old age and for retirement and for education. You know, yesterday I was in my office and, and all of a sudden I'm, I'm, my heart jumped. My phone put out this funny ringtone. I thought the alarm went off in the building, and then it came up on my phone that I'm supposed to prepare for the hurricane. We would do well to prepare to meet God. Now we we, we buy all this insurance so that if a hurricane comes, you know we're covered for this. And we're look. Do you have assurance? Do you know that you know that you know? that heaven is your home. Now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. You can't come to Christ whenever you want to come to Christ. When God is convicting you and drawing you, you would be wise. Now, I wish there was no hell, but there is. I wish there was no such thing as sin, but there is. Now, I can tell you I don't like child abuse and war and drug abuse and murder but it doesn't change the fact that it's true. And you can say, I don't like the doctrine of hell, but it doesn't change the fact that it is a real biblical doctrine. But thank God, not only is there a hell, there is a heaven. And I'm not here simply to tell you this morning to go to hell. I'm here to tell you today to go to heaven. I don't want you to say I'm damned. I want you to say I'm I'm saved. I know my name is written in the Lamb's book of life. You say, pastor, how can I know that? You have to receive Jesus as Lord. You have to reject the world's way of religion, Nimrod's way of religion, Babylonian religion that is man-based through human effort. And you must embrace God's way through the Messiah, the Lord Jesus. He is the only one who can save you. And if you will come bankrupt acknowledging that your sin is wrong and needs to be changed, and put your faith, full confidence in Jesus who died, was buried, and was raised, in a moment's time, you'll be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And when you die or when Jesus comes, He'll take you to heaven. You can know because it's the gift of God and it is not earned. Have you ever received that gift Today is the day to do it. Prepare to meet your God. And if you've met Him, are you spreading the good news? What was last week like for most of you listening? Did you tell anyone about Jesus? You're commanded to. It's not just a command of preachers. It's a command of the whole blood-bought church of God. As you go, make converts. Not do discipleship. That's an escape. Oh, I do discipleship. That's what the Great Commission is. Make disciples, do discipleship. That's not the Great Commission. That is a distortion of truth. The commission first and foremost is as you go make converts, preach the gospel to everyone under creation. What do you do with these new converts? They're to be baptized. And then you teach them. You cannot say that you are engaged in the Great Commission if you're not attempting in some way, shape, or form to bring people to Jesus. Hell is real. Heaven is real. This is good news that we must preach. Now, Holy Father, we thank you today for what you've given us. Thank you. This is not simply what you have said, but this is what you are saying. And I pray for someone today within the sound of my voice, someone who says, I think I'd go to heaven. I hope I will, but they cannot absolutely say on the basis of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection alone, that they are there. You brought them here today that they might be saved. Thank you that salvation is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can brag. You said the wages of sin is death, that wage Jesus took. We bless you for it. The gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. Help someone today to believe your word. That's what you said faith is. It's taking you at your word. It's trusting what you've promised. Thank you, Father, that you can promise what you've promised because you've done what you've done. Thank you that whosoever will may come, that whoever will call on Jesus' name will be saved. Help someone today in simple, childlike faith to say, Lord Jesus, Save me. Father, you said that if someone has really done that, they'll be unashamed of it. I pray you'd help someone today to confess that publicly. Help someone in Graniteville. Help someone on our Bluffton campus. And for those of us who have met you, Father, help us to take the assignment carefully. Help us not to have regrets when we meet the Lord Jesus in heaven of the people that we could have shared with, but we're silent. We ask you for opportunities in the week before us to share a word of testimony, to invite people to church, and even to take someone through the plan of salvation. Help us to tell them what we have come to know. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.